to see you. We're glad that you're here today. Thanks for coming back this week. I'm sorry I had to be gone last week. Um, you, many of you all know that last week I, I, I did uh, cancel our meetings because of the ECO, our, our national denominational meeting, our ECO National Synod meeting. It was kind of a strange week for me because uh, I, my, I was delayed in going because of a funeral. Uh, and then I was, uh, and then when I, while I was in transit between here and Dallas, while I was driving between here and Dallas, because of the impending ice storm, they actually compressed the schedule and shortened it by a day. So I ended up being up there for about 20 hours um, after, you know, so, so a good, you know, a good 10 hours of driving in bad hours, in bad weather for 20 hours of, of actual time in Dallas. And it's, it's one of those frustrating things when you get to a really nice hotel room and you're like, oh man, I wish I could stay here for a few days. And, but I didn't want to stay for longer than I wanted to and get stuck in the ice storm. But uh, Lelan asked me, was there any, there, there's nothing, nothing really noteworthy to, uh, to mention about the meeting itself, except that uh, our denomination is doing, doing well, we're healthy. Um, the, the great thing about it is, you know, most, most of the times these synod meetings have become really wonderful reunions and times for learning and growth and training. Unfortunately, I missed a lot of that, <laughs> but, um, but it was still a great time to be there. But most, most of all, I want to thank you all for your, your patience and letting me go and be a part of that. That is, you know, it's so important for us to remember that we are not out here by ourselves in, t in South Texas, that we are part of a larger church family, and that is a very encouraging and inspirational thing for, for all of us. And so I, I encourage you in the future, especially... Uh, if, if when it's close by to, to come to one of those synod meetings, you don't. I mean, the 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 synod part where you actually have to be a commissioner is limited in attendance, but the rest of the speakers and all that that's that it's really much more like a conference. And, and we have some great speakers. We have some great uh, worship services and things like that. And so it's all worth uh, it's all worth doing. So that being said, I wanted to thank you for that, um, and and we're ready to get back. I've, I missed y'all last week, and I'm. Glad to be back, and so we're going to get started today. I'm going to tell you something that is going to be a surprise to no one here. As I was looking, as I was reviewing my lecture from last night, and I was reviewing our notes and everything, and kind of where I ended up going last night in the in the early version, the preseason version of this, uh, it's not going to be any surprise to you that I'm planning to go off script today. Uh, you, that, you, that does not mean that your outline will be totally irrelevant or anything like that, but what it does mean is, is that as I, as I distilled this in my mind and as I thought about this important, this really important episode in this book of Joshua, I just, my, my thinking on how this would be presented just sort of changed a little bit. So, so what we're going to do today, first of all, we're going we're gonna to jump in. We're going to talk first about the story. We're just going to kind of go through some of the, the details of the story of Joshua and the people crossing the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3. But then we're going to get into what I think is really the meat and importance of this story, which is the gospel before the gospel. That is to say, you know, this story is not just important for its historical significance and for the narrative of the story itself, but this story is just loaded with theological import. I mean, this is one of those places where, where the, the Old Testament and the New Testament just really come together. It's, it's like uh, you may have heard in, uh, in sort of Celtic spirituality, the reference to what are sometimes referred to as thin places, those places where it seems that heaven and earth are really close together. 
And, and you know, this is one of those places in the Bible where, where the New Testament and the Old Testament feel really close together. And so that's, that's why I want to do this. But it's also a reminder, and this and, and our study of Hebrews right now are, are a big reminder of why it's so important for, for Christians to be conversant with both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, I, I hear so many people sadly say, you know what, I, I'm a New Testament Christian. What they mean by that is, you know, I only believe in greats. I don't believe in the Old Testament law. I don't believe in any of that stuff. I only believe in the God of, you know, what they, the way they construe it, the God of love versus the God of law or something like that. And it's like, you really don't understand the New Testament until you understand the Old, or unless you at least appreciate the Old. And so this is one of those times when... when when I think our, our understanding of Scripture is maximized, when we understand that, uh, as St. Augustine said, that in the old, the, the, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. And I think that that's what, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here today. So, so we're going to first go, you know, we're going to talk about the story first, and then we're going to talk about the gospel before the gospel. So with that in mind, let, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, I just ask that you, would, that you would help us to see the unity of your word. That you would help us to see how thousands of years before we came along and a thousand years before your son came into the world, even more than that, you were working your purposes out. That things were moving forward and that, things were, that, that your world was moving ever onward from the beginning toward your creation and recreation. So Lord, help us to understand your word and help us to understand this episode in the context of your greater word so that we can understand it more deeply. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. So, uh, over here on the table, uh, or maybe passed around, I'm not sure what she did, Sheila has distributed um, some information about a trip that we're going to be taking in November. And in November, Morgan and I, along with Mike Fanning, are going to be taking a group uh, from this church to Israel. It's going to be November 7th through the 16th, so Morgan's birthday through you know, through the 16th of November next year. And we're really looking, looking forward to it, doing a lot of reading in preparation for that. I am in the situation where I, you know, I'm a pastor. I've never been to Israel. I've had four opportunities to go for free. And every time I had that opportunity, I, there was some family event, not like a tragedy or anything, but like a family event, like a wedding or a graduation or something like that was coming up. And so I've never been able to go. So I am absolutely dying to get there. I am so excited about going, and I, and I can only imagine how much more fun it'll be to go with people in this congregation, to go with you know, friends and, and just to experience that together. But one of the reasons for that is because I'm one of those people who really, I, I mean, I get, I, I really do feel the connection of a story in the sense of place. Um, how many of you have ever been to Gettysburg, to the Gettysburg battlefield? There's something special about being there. You can read about Civil War history, but until you go, I mean, when you, when you step onto that battlefield, it, it is kind of like I was saying, it's like one of those thin places where there's something special about being there. I had a very similar feeling, of course, love it, being a lover of Scottish history when I went on to Culloden Battlefield in northern Scotland. Um, you, you, go to, you, know, you go to some places like 
Um, oh, I don't know, like Revolutionary War battlefields. It's all battlefields for me, I realize. Um, you know, but like, you know, going to, you know, to Camden or to, you know, places, you know, up in Virginia, um, you, know, you go to the, you know, go to all these, these incredible historic sites. They're just powerful. You feel that connection. And as a matter of fact, one of my favorite authors is a military historian who, he's a, he was a British professor at Sandhurst, which is their version of West Point. And he actually wrote, a, you know, a whole history of, the, of America through, by looking at America's battlefields and how important those places are. You know, and I remember a professor at WNL saying, you know, why is it that, that you know, when we, when we learn history that we neglect to learn the geography that goes with it? So if you're studying a place like, you know, it's not just America, but if you're studying a place like China or, uh, or European history, you know, doesn't it make a difference to have actually been there? Uh, as a matter of fact, I heard a great quote, uh, quote once that, that travel is the world's best classroom. And I think that that's true. Now, that's not the only way you can do it. I mean, I, I certainly respect reading and all those things, but there's something about being in a place and actually being there. So, so one of the things I'm really excited about is being in Israel. Mike Fanning said, I, he says, within 10 minutes of hearing somebody preach, I can tell whether or not they've actually been to Israel because there are things that you can take in that, that you just are not going to take in otherwise. So right now, for, till, till I get there in November, I'm having to rely on other people's experiences of actually being there. And yesterday, as I was preparing to talk about this, this event at the Jordan River, I was just looking for pictures, looking for pictures to include in this. And this is the, I found this one and I just stared at it for like 15, 20 minutes. This is a picture taken in 1912. Uh, of the Jordan River. Now, now, what I love about this is, I mean, I mean, the, the, one of the things I believe is that, like some pictures uh, show a picture of a thing. Sometimes, sometimes pictures show a picture, uh, tell a story about a thing. And I and I love to kind of fill in the blanks. Who who are these people? Who is this guy? What what is this? Um, you know, what is I mean? Is it and what is this over here? Is a barn? I I've never heard that there was a pyramid next to next to the Jordan River. But what what is it? I mean. So, you know, my, my conjecture is that, you know, these are, you know, these are early versions of the first Presbyterian Israel trip, um, you know, and they've rented, you know, they, they, asked, they asked these guys to help them get across the river because these look like a couple of European ladies may, or maybe one European lady and her servants. This guy looks like a local. Um, you know, he's, he's, probably crossed the, he's probably crossed the Jordan River 20 times a day. I remember what, you know, and that's the thing, you know, when you live next to a river that's like a border or something like that, like we used to live in Augusta, Georgia, it really is, it really doesn't, it's not that big a deal to kind of cross over. We would cross over into, into Georgia 10 times a day. I remember once when we were traveling with my mom and we were down, uh, we were down near Savannah and we were about to go cross over from South Carolina into Georgia. We were going from Hilton Head to Savannah and my mom turned to my kid and says, says, all right, guys, we're about to cross the Savannah River. We're about to get into Georgia. And my kids looked at her and said, Vicki, we do this 10 times a day. You know, it's like, we realize it's a big deal for you, but we do this 10 times a day. But, you know, there's, there's something about rivers. There's something that, that border. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have, it's one thing to cross a state line. But when you cross a river, you know that something significant has happened. You know, there's, there's, there's that sense that a real passage, a real division has been crossed. And, and, and so, you know, and I look at this, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, back, you know, in 1912, you can see the date down here, 1912, 
you can see, I mean, th you know, this was still all British territory. I I'm not sure which direction we're looking. I guess uh, I'm not sure if we're looking into, uh, into Palestine or we're looking into Jordan. But, you know, these, this was all British protectorate at this point. Um, the modern nation of Israel didn't exist yet. I don't know if we're looking at the East Bank or the, le or, or the West Bank. Not sure which it is. But, you know, you start to get a sense of place and story. And even in 1912, I mean, in 1912, probably still looked a lot like it did. Now, some pictures you see of the Jordan River, and it's not much bigger than the San Antonio River. I mean, it's not, I mean it's, it looks like, you know, it'd be pretty easy just to wade across. Other pictures of the Jordan River, you see it at, like, flood stage, when it looks more like the Savannah River, when it really is a, a pretty big body of water. Now, how deep is it? How fast is it? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you, it's hard to get a sense of. But I can tell you, I'm really excited to go there, to be there, and, and to see it. Put my feet in it, to stand beside it. And, and I, but, you know, even with all that, I can't even begin to imagine the excitement that the people of Israel felt in standing beside the Jordan River, finally, not just after a three-hour car ride or a 15-hour plane flight, but after 40 years of wandering in the desert, and finally after, you know, a while camped over in Shittim, just right up, up, up the bank, and finally getting to that place where we're going to cross. We're finally going across. It's finally here. Today is finally the day. We have finally arrived. I mean, I just, just that sense of anticipation. I'm still, you know, months away. We're still months away from going to Israel. I'm already starting to feel it. And that's, you know, I can just imagine how this had been building up for decades in these people. So, you know, so when I look at this, I, I, I want to know these stories. I want to know what brought them here. You know, how are they here? Why are they here? What's going on? What, again, what is, is this like a hotel? I mean, it might be. It might be like a, a, a hotel for travelers. Like you stop, cross the river the next day, you go on. I, we don't know. But, but you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out all of those things. So, you know, so, of course, you know, there's the historical Old Testament significance of the Jordan River. But there's also a pretty significant event that happens in the Jordan River in the New Testament. You know, here, again, this, this river, which by American standards is not very big, even by world standards, it's not very big, shows itself to be of critical importance. Something happened in the Jordan River that never happened anywhere else, will never happen again. And that is that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was baptized in the Jordan River. And that's not just important for the New Testament. There is a deep link between what we're talking about today and what happened in the Gospels. And so this is, a, this is an important place, an important story. Just to, just to catch up from last time we met, remember last time we met, we talked about Rahab and the spies that Joshua sent across. And of course, this is another good example of how a story of the Old Testament and, a, and the, the New Testament come together. Because what was, you know, what was the significance of Rahab? Was it just that she hid the spies and just that she was faithful? I mean, is that the only thing that's important about Rahab? No, what, what else is important about Rahab? Yeah, she is one of the ancestors of Jesus. I mean, you know, again, think about this. When, I mean, before the Israelites showed up, when things were probably more regular in Jericho, before that, and even after that, because she did survive the Battle of Jericho, 
think about it. When the, the same river in which Jesus was baptized was probably the same river that his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmama had played in, bathed in, visited, knew. I mean, again, you know, you go to old home places and you realize this is the same house that my grandparents lived in. Same house that my aunt, you know, my, my great-great-grandparents lived in. I remember when we lived up in Virginia, I found out that one of my first ancestors who had come to America from, from Scotland had had a farm about three miles away from where we were living. I mean, it just I mean, overwhelmed me. I mean, again, I'm, I'm a big history geek like that, but it's just, it, that really did hit me. I mean, you see the, you know, the connections between ourselves and the people of the past. And here's Jesus stepping into the same riverbed that no doubt his family had known for generations. I just think that is, that is fascinating, and to me, that is powerful. But the Jordan is, is, a, is an important river. It's an important place. You know, of course, we, this is important because here we are finally at the edge of the promised land. And as we, as we especially next week, um, don't, miss, don't ever miss church, but next week especially, <laughs> we're going to be talking, there is a deep, deep connection between the, uh, between the book of Hebrews and entering into the promised land and salvation as it's presented in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews. Because there is a strong analogy between, the, the author of Hebrews describes you know, our eternal rest in God by the visual illustration or the, the mental illustration of the Hebrews entering the promised land, entering the rest that God had promised them. So these things are all come together. But as we look at this story, you know, there are really three main movements in the story itself. The first is what we call the preparation. The second is what I call the promise. And the third is what I call the passage of the people. Just three brief movements within this, um, within this uh, very short story. But uh, they're all very important. But let's, again, let's talk about where they crossed over. Um, I think one of the things that's neat about the Old Testament is that it is full of historical and geographic detail. Why is that? Because these are stories that took place in real time, in real history, in real places. I mean, again, you know, by the time you know, we've moved away, by the time of the Old Testament, from the understanding that God just operates in heaven and everything operates in a mythological world. The events of the Bible took place in real time, in real places, with real people. And so, you know, this is, I mean, again, Israel is a pretty small neighborhood. But they were camped in this place called Shittim, on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan. They crossed here, which is interestingly very, inter very close to where Jesus was baptized, right there in the same neighborhood. Of course, Jericho is on the other side of the river. We talked about that last time, that, you know, even if, you can't, even if there's not a direct light sight line, I'm fascinated to find out if there, if there is a, a, a direct sight line. Because if they could see Shittim from Jericho, boy, that would be intimidating. Because they would have seen the whole Hebrew horde over here getting ready to invade. And then, but there's also this reference in the passage we read today of this little village called Adam. Again, so why would that, you know, why would that have been included in the story? Not necessarily because it was important to the story, but for future readers, that's like saying, oh, well, you know where Adam is. Well, it took place just downstream from Adam. 
Now, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Don't, I mean, when we tell stories, don't we usually try to give some kind of place, like, oh, well, this happened, you know, this happened, you know, in... Uh, this happened in, Uval in Uvalde, or this happened in Hondo, or this happened in Charleston, or this. I remember once, though, when my, um, my, I was visiting aunts and uncles up in West Jefferson, North Carolina, and they were trying to give me directions someplace. And they said, um, they said, oh, okay, well, what you're going to do to get to Uncle, to get to Uncle Hoke's house, you're going to go down uh, US 21, and you're going to take, go, three miles, you're going to turn at the elementary school, then you're going to take a quick left where Mr. Johnson's barn used to be. <laughs> I didn't know Mr. Johnson, and I certainly have never seen his barn. I have no idea where it used to be. <laughs> you know, so, so that was not a particularly helpful reference, but we do. We tend to you know, we place names and, and, and things like that. And you know, so you see this detail, and, and, and you know, that's, that's kind of neither here nor there to us, except that it refers to a real place. You know, I really get, my skin really crawls when, when people start talking about the, the mythological, you know, Bible. You know, that these things are, you know, this is all mythology and all legend. It's like, no, it's like, at least acknowledge, you know, on, your, on the Discovery Channel. At least acknowledge that these people believe that these things really happened. And they put in real place names and real dates and things like that to, to actually anchor them in history and location. That's what this is. So we see that, you know, the text says that it was just it was near, near the town of Adam, near where all these other things happened. And, and so what happens here? Well, at the beginning of the story, we see that Joshua said, has been told by the Lord, it's time. And it's time for him to command the people to cross the Jordan. So looking at verses, the first few verses. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. Now, that's the headline, Okay. That's the headline, and now it's going to start giving the details. And they came to the Jordan, and he and all the, all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. So again, we still see that, that there's still this structure, there's still this organization in the people uh, in the camp of Israel. And they told the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place, and you shall follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you shall not have passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now what's fascinating about that, that, those first five passages, or first five verses, is really what you see there is an outline for the rest of the story. You all may remember the old uh, communicator's admonition to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them. Kind of a you know, way to reinforce a, a verbal argument. Well, that's, that's kind of what's happening here. They're going to tell us what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Then, then in, the, in the telling of this, we're telling what happened. So here's, Joshua, here's, here's the story telling us this is what's going to happen. Joshua's saying this is what's going to happen. Now that's important because that's another theme that we see, say for example, throughout Scripture. God likes to tell the people what's going to happen, so when it happens, they know it wasn't an accident. <laughs> this is, you know, this, it happened just like I told you. So Jesus says three times, I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, tortured, killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. It's going to happen, I, I I'm telling you, it's three times, okay? When it happens, don't be surprised. 
Of course they were. Everybody was astonished. It's a miracle. Nobody's not going to be surprised by that. But he wanted to say, so when it happens, make sure you know that this was the will of God, not just coincidence. So he says all these things. So, so Joshua and the Israelites, they set out for the Jordan. And they're, you know, they're there by the river. And he gives these specific instructions for the crossing to his, uh, to his officers. They go out and they tell all of the people what they're supposed to do. And, and the instructions are basically this. First, follow the Ark of the Covenant to the Jordan River. Now, that is not a new instruction. When are the people supposed to move? Remember from Numbers, when are the people supposed to move? When the Ark moves. And why do they move when the Ark moves? Because what is the Ark? The Ark is the mercy seat, the throne of God. And so when they're carrying the ark, what are they doing? They're carrying the throne of God. It's kind of like the, the, you know, the big palanquins, the big you know, the, um, the, 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 um, sedan chairs that you, know, you see in cultures where you've got, the, you've got all the attendants and they're carrying the guy on the post and there's the, you know, the, the one guy up there sitting and they're carrying him. And you know, that's obviously the king and you follow the king. So, you know, but the, the subtle message is here, we're going to go, but we're going to do, do it how? We're going to follow God. I mean, he didn't, one thing that the, Joshua did not say, okay, there's the river, it's time, we'll meet up on the other side at 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. That's not what he said. No, no, we're going to do this the way God directs us to do this. So, um, so he says um, that we're going to march. We're gonna, first of all, I want you to follow. We're going to follow, follow the ark of the covenant across the Jordan River. And I want to go back for a second and look at those verses in chapter 3. He says, um, uh, at the end of three days, uh, what does he say? He says, con um, oh, let's see. Well, first, I mean, he begins by saying, first of all, listen to the word of the Lord. But then you're going to follow the ark into the river. I'll come back to that. What's the next thing he says? He says, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. What does consecrate mean? What's that? To cleanse. What else does it mean? It's not just to cleanse. Why, why do you cleanse? To be, to be what, Barbara Ann? Acceptable. Uh, to be acceptable? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all right, so, so you know, you've got Valentine's Day coming up, or you've got a special event coming up. You know, what do you do? You know, one of the things you do is you, you know, you, you take a shower, you get, you know, you primp, you dress. What are you doing? You're getting ready. You know it's special, so you get ready. So, you know, we said, yes, consecrate means to purify, purify yourself. That's the, wash, that's the shower part. But we don't just, you know, but, but, you know, if you're getting ready for a big date or a special night out or a special event, you don't just take a shower and then put on old dirty clothes or anything, do you? No, you, you get ready. You just, you, you prepare yourself. Not just physically even. You know, I remember, you know, as a young man getting ready for a date, you know, I would, you know, I would take a shower, I would get dressed, and then what, would, then, then what would happen? Then the mental preparation starts. You know, the, the psyching yourself up. The reminding myself, don't say anything stupid. Ask her about herself. All those sorts of things. You know, I'm, I, am, I am mentally getting my game face on. I'm psyching up. Same thing if you're, you know, for you know, an athlete, warming up for, for a game or something like that. We're getting ready. So, so Joshua is telling him, get ready. Which I think is really important. Because... When we, you know, when we are going to engage in the work of the God, in the work of the Lord, we have to get ready. 
And I think that part of the, the flip side of this is that, you know, how would it be if you had a, you know, a big date and you didn't get ready? Kind of showed up in gym shorts or, you know, showed up in old ratty clothes. And I'm not talking because those aren't, I mean, I'm not saying you have to have fancy clothes, but you just showed up, you know, you don't care. One of the things that I think we need to understand is that Joshua is telling them, we're not going to go casually into this. God is not calling us casually to follow him. We need to be prepared. We need to get ready. So when you come to church on Sunday, when you, when you, when you come to Bible study, when you go out to serve him, get ready, prepare yourself, consecrate yourself, because we're about to do a holy thing here. Don't go into it casually. And so, and then, you know, and, and that applies not only to your personal preparation, but also to the nation itself. How are we going to cross the Jordan? Well, we're going to do it. We're going to move the same way God's been telling us to move as a people ever since the book of Numbers. There's a specific order, and everybody's got their job, and every tribe's got their position, and every clan within the tribe of Levi has their own specific role. Now, one thing that's kind of an interesting anomaly here is that there's a special designation that says the Levitical priests are going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Who ordinarily carries the Ark of the Covenant? It's still the tribe of Levi, but it's the Kohathites. It's a different, you know, their job, we're the, we're the Ark movers, the priests are the ones who minister. I believe there's a significant tie-in in the fact that it's the priests who carry the ark into the water. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But I think, it's, I think that, you know, that's, you know, every other time it's the Kohathites who are supposed to carry the ark. But this is something different. This is something special. And, and so there's a specific word from the God to say this is how it's going to happen. So what's going to happen? They consecrate themselves, and then what? Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from, uh, from, uh, from one of each men, and have them you know, go through the camp and be ready. Just, we want you to go ahead and designate 12 men because something's going to happen on the other side of the river too. And then he, said, he turns from the people and he turns to the priests. Look at verse 6. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now, this is interesting. And as for you... Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So don't go all the way in. You just basically get your feet in and then, and then wait. Stand still there. Okay? So, first of all, he's going to tell the, he's tell the priest, when you, you know, when you take the Ark, you're going to pass in front of the people. This is a reminder this is a reminder that what? That when we move, we follow God. We don't lead God. I mean, how, how often do we try and lead God? Think about when we pray. God, this is what I need to happen. And then for safety, we throw in, if, thy, if it be thy will. Do we really mean that? <laughs> shouldn't, we pray, shouldn't we pray, Lord, this is what I need, but thy will be done. Rather than, okay, Lord, this is what you're going to do <laughs> if it be your will. You know, we, the idea here is we're, we're letting God lead us. That God is going to be leading them across the Jordan. 
We, and we need to understand the leadership of God. It's not just about, listen, I get to be in front. But as we remember Jesus, you know, Jesus time and time again showed us that you know, before he asked us to obey, he obeyed. Before he, asked him, before he asked us to love one another, he loved. Before he asked us to forgive, he forgave. Before he, did any, before he bet his life on God, or before we bet, he asked us to bet our lives on God, he bet his life on God. So Jesus always goes first. So verse 8, As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Verse 7, going back to verse 7, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. Now, I think this is a fascinating passage. Um, this is the promise. They've already prepared. They know what they're supposed to do. Before they start moving, God makes Joshua a promise. He says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. This is an incredibly important theological statement. Because, so good Presbyterians, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But wait a minute, what is God saying here? He doesn't say, you're going to exalt me. What does He say to Joshua? I'm going to exalt you. Now understand, Joshua doesn't yet know what's going to happen. Nowhere has God said, I am going to part the, I'm going to stop the Jordan River. He hasn't said that. He hasn't said what I'm going to do. He's just saying, I want you to understand that what's going to happen, I am doing to exalt you. Isn't that fascinating? Why? So that the people, what's that? So the people will understand that Joshua is God's guy. This is directly related to the overall purposes of miracles in the Bible, or really the chief purpose of miracles in the Bible. What is the chief purpose of miracles in the Bible? It is generally to exalt the person who is doing the miracles, to un and not exalt them above God, but so that God can put his stamp on that leader and say, this is my person. You know, where are the greatest collections or where the greatest sort of masses of miracles in the Bible? Well, one clearly is with Jesus. One is with Moses. And then the third was really, I mean, some others would be, you've got Joshua, you've got Elijah, some others. I mean, it's not to say that they don't happen in other places, but the, the greatest concentration of miracles are around Moses and Jesus. And in both cases, the purpose of those miracles is to demonstrate that person's God-given authority. That their authority, that their leadership comes from God. And that is exactly what's happening here. I mean, by this point, you know, up to this point, Moses, I mean, uh, Joshua has heard several times, as I was with Moses, Moses, so will I be with you. And I'm sure at this point, Joshua was maybe thinking, okay, I know God is faithful. He's been good with me. Um, and and I just, you know, I'm just glad that he's going to be with us when we fight. But when he says, when God says, I'm going to be with Moses, I'm going to be with you as I was with Moses, 
you know, if I was Joshua, I'd be thinking, well, is he going to back me up with some miraculous things? I mean, consider, I mean, Moses, I mean, he started off with a couple of, you know, parlor tricks, like turning staffs into snakes. And, and then, you know, you had pretty colossal plagues, turning the river into, turning the river Nile into blood and, and all that kind of stuff. And you had these unbelievable acts of, uh, uh, you know, act, supernatural acts over natural phenomena. And then to cap it all off, the cherry on top of the Sunday, the parting of the Red Sea, and then the, you know, giving the people food in the desert and water in the desert and victory after victory. I mean, Moses' life is a resume. It is a, it is a record of miraculous behavior. And that's what's coming to Joshua. But Joshua doesn't know that yet. But he says, what happens next? I'm doing to exalt you. I am doing this to prove your leadership, my, that I am backing you up here. And so what happens? And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Again, this miracle, what you're about to see is so that you will know that God is for real and that his promises are for real. The Lord, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, then the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So what's going to happen first? The priests are going to step into the water. And then what's going to happen? Then the water is going to start to, to pile up. I want you to just freeze on that for a second. Have you ever tried to pile up water? I mean, seriously, I mean, I mean, I'm not talking about ice. The, the, the words ice cube have never entered into these people's vocabulary. Okay? I mean, try to push water. Try to stack up water. Try to pile water up and up. You know, it's like if you've got a, you know, you know, if you know there's an ice storm coming, try to, you know, fill up your, fill up your bathtub and then take handfuls of it and stack it over in a corner. All you're going to get is a messy, wet room. So I want you to think about it. They are saying that, he, that God is about to pile up water in a heap. Only the person, only the one with the power of heaven and earth and dominance over even the laws of physics could ever bring that to pass. This is not a natural thing that it's talking about. This is a supernatural thing that he's talking about. I mean, it wouldn't be any, it wouldn't be any big deal if God dug a big ditch and said, we're going to divert the water and, and let it pool over here. No, I'm going to stack up the water. And you're going to see it you're going to see something that no person or no event, no person could ever do and that can never be repeated. I'm going to stack, I'm going to, and you know, it's like on the one hand, people say, oh, well, you know, he parted the Red Sea with Moses, but he only stacked up the water of the Jordan with, with Joshua. Only. I mean, again, again, total control of the laws of physics. Is this, I mean, this is the same God who later in Joshua will stop the earth on its axis to give the people of Israel time to win a battle. Had an interesting question um, from a member of the group last night. He's like, you know, sometimes people talk about like these events like they're, 
you know, like they're you know miracles in the sense of well like the like there's the old thing about the the Red Sea was really mistranslated from the Reed Sea and they really crossed across this marsh and things like that and you know did I you know how did I interpret stuff like that well first of all I'm just going to go ahead and say I am a good old-fashioned Bible-believing Orthodox fundamentalist when it comes to miracles and here's why because there are you know there are different types of miracles there are what we call miracles which are really kind of events of coincidence and then there are real true to life supernatural miracles that the creator of the universe can do and you know say so you know you take for example like in the case of the red uh, of the reed sea the red sea there are you know there are people who you know the people who say well what really happened was that the tide went out and the wind blew and they were able to cross over on dry land and all that kind of stuff is like okay if, if that's what you believe happened, that's a, you know you know maybe historically you believe that's what happened, and pe- but then people say well that you know but that doesn't really diminish the miracle of the people escaping. It's like yes it does, it diminishes the, the miracle of God, because that kind of miracle is not the same kind of miracle that we're talking about in Scripture. I mean for, you know again, we say that when you know uh, you know we use the word miracle very casually. For example, in 1980, when we beat the Russians in hockey, we called it the what? The miracle on ice. No, that was not a miracle. That was not supernatural intervention. That was just good old American grit and learning how to skate from Canadians. That's what happened. All right? We say that we have a miracle. You know, this, this baby is a miracle. Yeah, kind of. You know, we think of it that way, but... Everything that the reason that baby's here is because God set in place natural events and motions and chemical outcomes and things like that to all bring that baby to pass. So that part of, yeah, I mean, as an extension of the miracle of creation, yes, this new child is a miracle. But something unique, something powerful, like what we see in Scripture, whether it is, you know, a bush that burns but is not consumed or a sea that is parted, or a river turning into blood, or water stacked up upon itself. That is a real supernatural miracle designed to say, there is no way this could happen except by God. So my approach to like the, the sort of the coincidental explaining away of miracles in, you know, that some people try is, is, a, is it's like, okay, I understand, but realize what you're sacrificing. You're sacrificing the explicit purpose of a miracle, which is to say this is something that only God could do. And if God is really God, then he can do it. And so that's why I really do believe, you know, it's like the virgin birth, the birth of Jesus. That was not something that we can reproduce or that could happen any other way. The resurrection. These things are not things, these are not coincidental happenings that could have happened naturally and just and the timing worked out. These are signs that God specifically did that He can't do and we can't explain. That's why they're miracles. And so we don't want to lose that. He says, but I love this. He says, I'm going to do this miracle and, and listen to this. Expect the water to separate. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Again, 
I'm going to show you something you've never, ever seen before. And so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, um, then, uh, excuse me, just lost my place, uh, then the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, and the city that is beside uh, Zarathan. I mean, all the water just stopped. Didn't disappear, it just stopped. And it was there uh, before them. And now the, priest uh, now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Have you ever been in a creek bed, river bed, that has recently had water in it? Is it dry and sandy? No. It's still mucky. And I mean, the fact that it's dry is, again, God showing supernatural power here. And all Israel was passing over on the dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now, you know, there are a few things that I want to talk about in terms of the gospel before the gospel, why this is so important for the rest of the biblical story. There are several theological movements in this story that bear our attention. The first, first one thing I was is, is, remember Joshua bids the people, first of all, to follow God, and to listen to the word of God. And so again, now these are these are what I would say. These would be preaching points for me if I was preaching this as a sermon. Follow God and listen to the word of God. But then he also tells them to what? To consecrate themselves. You know, my Sunday school class right now we're we're talking about we're learning about the different elements of worship. And why are we doing that? It's because when we come to worship, we should do so prepared to offer a gift to God. I had a great meeting with a young couple that I'm marrying in just a few weeks. And it was, it was one of those couples that I could just tell just got it when I said this. I said, you know, what is the per why do we come and why do we get married in a, in a church? And the, the bride-to-be said, because... because we come, it's not just about us, it's because when we get married, it's about worshiping God. And the, and the groom-to-be said, said, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, you know, our marriage isn't just, it, it isn't just a wedding. It's, it's like an offering we're giving to God. And I was like, man, that's it. You got it. You know, the reason we go through premarital counseling, the reason that we, we study the Bible is so that when we come in worship, we are prepared to address the living God. It's so that we are consecrated. We're ready. We're set apart. We've set aside this time. And I'm not talking about the young mom who's got to get three kids ready and into church and into the nursery and stuff them in the car and all that kind of stuff. And yes, you're going to be harried and there, things happen. But I'm talking for most of us. When we come into church, have we prepared ourselves? Have, when we come into the presence of God, have we, have we set our minds right? Have we calmed our spirits? Have we made the, the move from getting here to being here? And I'm not just talking about clothes. I'm not just talking about taking a shower. I mean, what's the state of your mind? What's the state of your heart? Are you in a position where you're like, this better be good or I'm not coming back next week? A consumer mentality or a worshiper mentality? I am here to leave it all on the field for God. You know, again, you know, when, when, when we're singing the hymns, do you, do you read the hymn, do you look at the hymns and say, oh, I don't like this one. I don't like this one either. You know, well, it's not for you. 
Who's it for? That's our musical offering to Him. We are performing a concert for Him. We're not the, we're not the audience. You know, how many, I, I had a friend, not a friend, well, a guy asked me once, um, how many people are in your audience at church? This is a guy who was not a church guy. He said, he said, well, how many people are in a typical audience at church? I said, one. He says, what do you mean? He's like, you only have one person show up? I was like, oh, I said, no, we have lots of people show up. But our audience is always one because we're doing this for God. This is our gift, our offering to him. Your wedding is an offering to God. And when we do these things, are we preparing? Are we preparing that gift for him? So he says, consecrate yourselves. I love it. Hear my promise. I will exalt you. Again, the purpose of miracles is to show, is to demonstrate that this is, this is my guy. This is the one. Pay attention to him. Follow the ark. God is going before you. Don't get out in front of God. Don't drag God along in your projects. Join him in what he's doing. Rick Warren used to have a beautiful uh, analogy of this. He used to say that, that being a disciple is like surfing. We don't, we don't make the waves. We ride the waves that God sends. You get really frustrated trying to surf, because he's from Southern California. You get really try, frustrated trying to surf if you're trying to make the waves instead of getting in the waves that God is sending. So we follow God where he leads. I love this. Uh, he, told the, he told the priest, Stand still in the water. Stand still in the water. You know, when they first got to the water, it was still flowing, right? What do you expect happens to you when you go into a rushing river? The water pushes against you. Ever try to stand up against the surf at the beach? Of course. You go down to the shore, you stand in the surf. One of the fun things to do is to stand there in the breakers and see, especially if you're a little kid, see if they can knock you over. Stand in a river, see if it can push you. And that's, that's all part of the fun of it. What God is telling him is like, go out into the water and stand still. I'll take care of the water. I'll take care of the trouble. I'll take care of the pressure. I'll take care of the pushing. You just obey me and you stand still. Stand firm. Trust me that I will take care of the water. Next, expect great things. He does finally tell Joshua what he's going to do. And just like with Moses, Moses is like, really, that's what you're going to do? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Don't expect little things from God. Expect big things from God. Now, as we think about it, you know, so those are just some important sort of preaching points, but there's some big, significant theological points too. And a lot of it has to do with the future appearance, a future really significance of the Jordan River and the baptism of Jesus. Because there are parallels between the baptism of Jesus, the crossing the Jordan River, the, uh, and even the crossing of the, of the Red Sea. I want you to think about this. There are three water partings in the Bible. The first is one we're, or one we're talking about today is the Jordan River. The second one is what? Red Sea. Or actually, the third one is the Jordan River. Second one is the Red Sea. What's the, what's the first big parting of the water? Creation. First time God parts the water, he separates the waters above from the waters below. God, now this is something that God uses, that he uses over and over again. But let's go back to specifically you know, the, 
the idea of, of you know, what's happening here between the Red Sea and the Jordan River. We tend to look at these things as two isolated stories. Different leaders, different times, 40 years of difference. I mean, yeah, they're, in, they're water, but, but in some ways, and actually in a critical way, they are related. When did the, when did the Red Sea get parted? When did, they part, when did God part the Red Sea? When they were leaving Egypt at the, at the beginning, or at the, at the Exodus. What does Exodus mean? The going out. Scholars often refer to the entering of the Promised Land as the Isodus. What does Isodus mean? Going into. So Exodus, exit, Isodus, going into. We don't use ice for that in our, in our language, but that's what it means. So what's in between the wilderness? Instead of thinking of these as two separate stories, think of them as the Exodus, the Red Sea, is when they go out of Egypt into the wilderness. And the Isodus, the Jordan, is when they come out of the wilderness into the promise of God. Now, let me hold that image and let me read to you what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The image in the New Testament, or one of the images of baptism in the New Testament, is, so think about an immersion baptism. Going down into death, being raised up to life. Think about it. Now draw this back to the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Scholars frequently refer to that complex, those two connected symbols, as the baptism of Israel, in which they go down into, into the death of the wilderness and are raised up into the new life of the promised land. Both times they pass through the waters so that God can start a new stage in their lives. Dying and rising. We die with Christ in the tomb, rise with Him. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful symmetry of these things. And that's why it was so important that Jesus was baptized. It's kind of a precursor of that. Jesus was baptized at the beginning of His earthly ministry. And then He rose from the tomb into new life. Now, He wasn't rebaptized or anything like that. But what we see again, and Paul makes the connection between baptism and His dying and rising. And what we see in this, in this complex of symbols, in this really elaborate narrative, and this, I mean, it's beautiful to see how God sort of pulls these things together, is we see that Israel is being baptized from freedom, or, uh, into, you know, into the wilderness, from slavery, and then into the promise of rest, into the promised land. And so, again, the baptism of the nation parallels our baptism, but it also connects to the baptism of Jesus. Because, again, what was the purpose of this miracle? Why, I mean, again, you go back to that original picture. The Jordan could be crossed. There were fords across the Jordan. You didn't have to stop the water of the Jordan to get across it. But why the miracle? What was the purpose of the miracle? So that Joshua could be exalted in front of the eyes of the people. What happened at the baptism of Jesus? 
Well, the water didn't split. What, what, almost there. What was that? That's, that's exactly right. Jesus, well, so first of all, the water didn't separate, did it? But what happened? The heavens were ripped open, were split. The world is schisma, like a split, schism. The heavens were split, and then the Holy Spirit, Spirit descended on him like a dove and said, what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he adds, and then at the transfiguration, God adds a tagline, what? What is that? Listen to him. <laughs> yeah, listen to him. So what is Jesus, you know, so what happens to Joshua at the Jordan River? God exalts him. What happens to Yeshua, Jesus, at the Jordan River? God exalts him. He says, this is my man. This is my beloved son. This is your savior. Trust him. Follow him. Believe him. Because I'm about to tell Joshua some crazy things. I'm going to tell Joshua that your strategy for conquering Jericho is marching around with trumpets. You're going to say, we thought he knew what he was talking about. He's really a pretty good general, but now he's saying we're just going to wreck this place with a, big, with a big marching band? No. No, trust him. I'm going to show you amazing things. I'm going to do great things in your sight, but you're going to have to trust me. And so this story is about the people of Israel finally coming through the waters and getting to that place of promised rest and having that leader who is going to trust them. Now I think, too, what's fascinating, I'm going to close on this point, is that... Um, you know, we always think about, you know, that, that oh, okay, so when I, when I cross over the Jordan, that, you know, that, that, that just means like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm dying, I'm in peace, and I'm in rest, and that's not an inappropriate symbol or anything like that. But, you know, when, you know, when we're baptized, that's not usually the, the end of our Christian life. When everything gets easy after that, that's what? That's the beginning of our, that's the beginning of our hardcore discipleship, is it not? I mean, when, did, when was Jesus baptized? After he'd done everything God had wanted to accomplish through him? No. At the beginning. When are we baptized? We're baptized at the beginning. God puts his promise, he puts his seal on us before we do anything to earn it. I think that's very significant in the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, although he was without sin, you know, to show us what things look like, God puts his stamp of approval, his covenant seal, his promise on Jesus before, before he does all the things, including dying on the cross for us, that God commands him to do. And, he also, and, and we see in the people of Israel, before they occupy the land, before they drive out the, um, the, you know, the pagans and, the, and uh, the Gentiles, before they establish the kingdom, God says, you are my covenant people. Go forth in confidence of that. And so again, this story is just full a theological, a, theological, a theological connection. And that's why I say that it is just full of the gospel before the gospel. So that's what I wanted to say about today. I know there's much more I could say about it, but we're over time. So, um, so any questions that you've got, feel free to ask your small group leaders. Um, <laughs> um, let me pray for us so y'all can get to your small groups. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this time today. Thank you for helping us to... to really wrestle with and explore the idea
of, of your covenant relationship with us, of your, of your promises, of your miracles, and especially, O oh Lord, of what it means to be baptized as your people. Lord, help us to connect the stories of the Old Testament to our own experience and help us to understand our own experience by understanding more fully the ways that you have dealt with and fulfilled your promises to your people throughout history. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.